our children as a church. Young people, please be seated. Last week, we communed together at the Lord's table. This meal of unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine has symbolic meaning, as we know. The bread symbolizes or or represents the body of Christ, and the cup represents the blood sacrificed to purchase the forgiveness of our sins. So these earthy elements, the bread and the juice, objectify our communion with Christ and our identification with salvation from sin, which He has purchased for His people on the cross. The bread and the juice do not save us. They do not add anything to our justification. Christ alone saves His people apart from our good works and apart from our ritual observances. But the bread and the cup symbolize this salvation. And they objectify our communion together in the transformational power of Jesus' death and of His resurrection. Now the other ordinance of the church, the other ordinance which Christ instructs us to observe as His body, is the ordinance of baptism. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus calls His followers to go into all the world and to make disciples. And then to take those disciples and to immerse them, to baptize them in water, and then to teach them to follow Jesus. So we baptize believers because the head of the church, Jesus Christ, instructs us to do so. Baptism is not a ritual of our making. I'd say what we did with the infants that were here earlier, that is a ritual of our making. And we freely acknowledge that. But baptism is not a ritual of our making. It's not a human tradition that we observe as part of our heritage. We baptize believers into the membership of this church in direct obedience to Jesus Christ, the head of the church. As with the Lord's Supper, baptism does not save us. It does not contribute to our justification in any way. We must be born again by placing our full trust in what Jesus has accomplished and what He provides by His grace. But as with the Lord's Supper, baptism also has symbolic meaning. So as we prepare for baptism here this morning, I'd like us to consider this symbolism. What is baptism saying? To what realities the scriptural baptism point. What is its meaning? The truth is we have very little biblical information from which to draw. The Bible says very little about this issue. A good deal of the answer is really gained actually from the historical context. And we follow a grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture. So in every text of Scripture, as we interpret it, we look at what is the meaning of the text, but we also must consider the historical context. No book of the Bible, no chapter of Scripture is simply free-floating with mystical ideas that are unrelated to this earth. All of Scripture is related to what is happening 
in the history of humanity as directed by God of all sovereignty and power. And so as we consider this context, it is helpful to us to understand the symbolism that is found in baptism. Let's look first of all at the background to New Testament baptism. As we think on, uh, without turning specifically uh, to that context, we think of John the Baptist, first of all. As we come into the New Testament text, we have John the Baptist baptizing those who have come to repentance in Israel. Identifying with John's message was to identify with the call to repentance. So you believed. And what you believed in part was that Israel was in rebellion against God, that there was a need for repentance to turn from sin and to follow God. And so you made your way out to the Jordan River where John was baptizing. You heard him preach his message and then were baptized identifying with that message. You're saying in a sense, I repent of my sin and I identify with what John the Baptist is saying. But what does getting dunked in the Jordan River mean? What's the point? Why do that to identify with what John the Baptist is preaching? You know what the New Testament says? Nothing. It doesn't explain it to us. There's an identification with what he's saying. There's a ritual here, but it really doesn't explain the symbolism. We come then to the book of Acts, and I invite you to turn there. In Acts chapter 2, we encounter 3,000 new believers in Jesus Christ, and they are being baptized. But again, the text does not address the symbolic meaning of baptism. As Acts unfolds, several more baptisms are narrated without explanation as to the symbolism or the meaning of baptism. Acts does not explicitly detail the symbolism of baptism, and I think in part because the historical context made that very clear to the ancient church. Immersion in water was a long-established and common ritual in the Jewish faith. I think it's important for us to see this linkage to the environment in which the early church was born. Some examples, the priests at the temple included an array of ritual baptisms under the Old Covenant in their service. There were washings of water, baptism in water, so that the priests could be prepared to serve. In certain contexts, Israelites immersed themselves in water before coming into the temple complex. Sometimes they were baptized before studying the scriptures or praying and in some situations before a scribe would even write the name of God he would be baptized immersed in water what's the point clearly there's a sense of cleansing here a purification a preparation to worship God there were sects of Jews at that time that required their adherents to be immersed every morning every morning they would take a bath a ritual bath, dunking themselves, submerging themselves in water. Now these baptisms took place ideally, according to the rabbinic writings, in bodies of water. The best was a flowing stream or perhaps a lake. And then they had different ideas, but it was, it was clear in, in, a, in a land like this, there isn't, it's not 10,000 lakes in Israel. It's a dry place, and so they had to construct baptistries, and they constructed them quite widely. 
They were referred to as mikvaot in the plural, or mikvah, the Hebrew word in the singular, and they were, they were tubs in, constructed very carefully according to rabbinic uh, tradition, and they were large enough, all of them, to submerge an entire body, holding about 200 gallons of water. So we're not talking about sprinkling, we're not talking about pouring, but a full submersion. And they figured as they looked at body types, they needed about 200 gallons of water to submerge anybody. And so the rabbis laid out the details, and archaeologists have unearthed some of these baptistries throughout, uh, within an Israelite context, not a Christian context. Forty-eight of them have been unearthed near one staircase leading up to the temple complex. So Israelites were being baptized all the time. It wasn't something they had to think about and to discern the significance of the symbolism. They understood this quite clearly. And as we put together this historical context with the narratives of baptisms we find in the book of Acts, I think we can conclude at least two things. Baptism identified God's people with a revelation about salvation. God had spoken about saving grace. And when you were baptized, you identified with God's message about salvation. Secondly, baptism symbolized, as I mentioned earlier, a cleansing from sin, spiritual purification, the idea of repentance. I come as a sinner in need of change. And baptism was a symbol then of being cleansed and purified. As we move from the historical context of the Old Covenant faith to the revelation that we find then in the New Testament, this symbolism is heightened and it is concentrated on the death and resurrection of Christ. This will come into play in just a few moments. But think of John the Baptist's baptism. You're baptized, you're identifying with his message of repentance. Would any follower of Christ ever be baptized again to identify with Jesus? Let that thought sit there. But it was an identification with a message, and it was indicating purification. So as we track through the narratives of Acts, It is clear that baptism was a ritual that identified one with the way of salvation in Christ and the purification that one receives from sin that was purchased at the cross. We will work through a few examples here briefly, and I I do this almost still at this point by way of background, but I would like us to notice in some of the examples of baptism in the book of Acts some key concepts. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. We know here the context of Pentecost, and we won't take time to read through the context here or in any of these references, but just to summarize, the risen and reigning Christ pours out His Spirit upon these early believers. Peter preaches the gospel to those who are observing this and comes to this place after saying Jesus has been crucified He has risen from the dead. As you respond to this message, verse 38, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have it all mixed right in that one sentence, don't we? Repent. You're sinners. You need to be cleansed from your sin. We see the reference there at the end of the verse to forgiveness of your sins. So you come in repentance. You're seeking the forgiveness of sins. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ. There is a revelation from God, a message of a way of salvation. You identify with this message in repentance, seeking the cleansing of God as you come to this baptism. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. He will bring together Israelites. He will bring together Gentiles in this one body, identifying in this way with the salvation in Christ. And he added many other words, verse 40. We don't have the whole sermon, but with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation, from this twisted, depraved world. Save yourself from it. So, those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls, identifying with the message of Christ crucified and risen. We come then to Acts chapter 8, where we see narrated another baptism. Acts chapter 8. Here we have the Ethiopian eunuch working his way from Jerusalem down south to Ethiopia. He is reading Isaiah 53, and he is seeing here of one who is crushed for sin, and he doesn't know who it's talking about. Philip the apostle comes alongside the the chariot and he speaks with this ethiopian eunuch begins to share with him the truth about jesus crucified and risen verse 34 the eunuch said to philip as he hears this message about whom i ask you does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else then philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture he told him the good news about jesus and as they were going along the road they came to some water and the eunuch said see here is water What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. The eunuch believes the good news about salvation in Jesus, and the eunuch is baptized. Now as we get to the end of these examples, I'm going to ask you some questions. So just be thinking about what's taking place here and what you're seeing in each of these accounts. We come then to the salvation of Cornelius in Acts 10, the baptism of Cornelius and others who are with him. Cornelius is this soldier that Peter is sent, the apostle Peter is sent to preach the gospel to this Gentile soldier. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 44, after that message is preached and proclaimed, we find here verse 44, Peter was still saying these things when the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So you're dealing with believers, baptizing the Spirit, seeing the same thing happening to Gentiles. And it's amazing to them. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues, extolling God. Then Peter explained, he declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. 
and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So he continues to teach and direct them there. Can anyone hinder these from being baptized who have received the Spirit of God in response to this message? Acts 19, the next example of baptism. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. I asked you earlier, what if you were baptized in responding to John the Baptist? Do you need to be baptized again in responding and identifying with the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen? Here we have the answer. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I imagine there was some conversation going on there. I don't think he introduced himself. said, hi, I'm Paul. Have you received the Holy Spirit? But he's probably discerning. There's something a little different about, about these followers of God. And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul says to them, into what then were you baptized? Into what message? Identifying with whom? And Paul said, John, and, and they said, into John's baptism. Verse 4, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, that's good, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. John is pointing forward, he's pointing in a different direction. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They identified with that message. Now, every baptism in the historical accounts of the early church is explicitly coupled to faith in the gospel. Did you notice that? In each of these examples, the word of God is proclaimed. People respond to that word and are baptized as evidence of their response to this message of Christ crucified and risen. In the waters of baptism, the baptized identified with this message, and they bore witness to the cleansing power of the Spirit of God. Wherever you see an example of baptism, and I would go further and say, wherever you even find a discussion of baptism, you always find it in the context of belief, of faith. Baptism is not just a thing hanging out there. It's always identified with a message and belief of those participating. There is not much teaching on baptism in the epistles as we move forward, in the writings of the apostles as they develop the Christian faith. But what we find there, I think, locks into the context, into the concepts that we have seen. And let's turn then to Romans chapter 6. And we'll settle down here just briefly as we consider further what baptism means. We read in verse 3 of Romans chapter 6 these words. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus dies, Jesus rises, we are united with Him. 
Romans 6 does not explicitly divulge the symbolism or even the meaning of baptism. I will admit, I do believe, against some faithful commentators, that the symbolism of baptism is implicitly explained in this text. It's not Paul's purpose to talk about baptism here. There's very little that we have to go on in the New Testament, but I think we do see implicitly the symbolism of baptism revealed here. Let me draw your attention just to a few phrases in these two verses. First of all, you notice he speaks of you and us and we. Who's he talking to? Obviously, Paul is addressing here people who have placed faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. We could go back to chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, where he refers to these individuals as saints, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. That's not saints, something they'll become someday, but rather they are people set apart from the world, called to be God's chosen people. And you say, well, faith in what? They, they are a people of faith, they are saints called apart by God, and he speaks to them of their faith that is proclaimed in all the world. Your faith is being announced to other people. Well, faith in what? Verse 16 of chapter 1, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This salvation is necessitated by our natural relationship to God and His law, which is worked out in chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul says, I, first in chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. You have embraced it. You are believers in this message. It's an absolutely essential message. Chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. They've together become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But, here's the good news, chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Not by obeying the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to this salvation. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is, as one who satisfies the anger of God against sin. So this salvation comes from above. By works of the law, no human being will be justified, he says in 3.20. It is through the law that the knowledge of sin comes, but also now comes the grace of God giving to us a righteous standing in the work that He has done in our behalf. It is to people, let's come back to Romans 6 then, it is to people who have trusted in this good news that Paul speaks of baptism. He speaks of their baptism as their identification with the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, I want to head off in just a little trail here for just a moment. But Christian scholars have long believed 
that there is an inseparable bond between faith and baptism. An inseparable bond between faith and baptism. Any question as to why they might think that? What do we see in all of those examples of baptism? And if we could go through every reference to baptism in the New Testament, we will continue to see this linkage between faith and baptism. What becomes very interesting then is what happens when various communions of Christians apply this reality to children. Now we want infants to be baptized and to participate in this as well. What do we do with the connection of faith and baptism when we're dealing with children who, from any of our examples and any of our experience, would say are not conscious of what's happening? I haven't met anybody yet, anyway, that says, yes, I was very aware of myself when I was six, week, six months old or six days old or something. We, we don't have that knowledge. So how do we have faith? How do we, what do we do with this faith-baptism connection? Within the Roman church, the Eastern Orthodox church, the faith of the child is an alien faith. This was, this was one of the first ideas, that it's an alien faith. So it's not the faith of the baby, it's the faith of the baby's parents who stand in by proxy sending their faith to the child. So baptism still connected to faith, but it's the faith of the parents for the child. That didn't work so well even within the Roman communion, and so they came up with a different idea, and that is that it is faith infused by the church from the treasury of merits. So all the excess goodness of the saints get put in this big tub, so to speak, the treasury of merits, and from that tub gets passed out grace to infants who are baptized. So it's really faith. It's not the child's faith, of course, but it's faith that comes from the treasury of merit. So the church infuses grace upon the child. Well, we move forward in time and we come to Martin Luther who had no time for any of that. That makes no sense at all. You can't pass on faith to someone else. And so Martin Luther proposed that the babies have faith. He knew the linkage between baptism and faith. He knew that could not be violated. And so he said, infants have faith. And you scratch your head a little and we go, how exactly is that? Well, in his thinking... When the Word of God is preached, the gift of faith is given to the child. Now, he had a major problem there when it came to some of those infants where the Word of God was faithfully preached at their baptism, but it became clear later they were never converted. They were never regenerate. But that's where he stayed at this point, and there was some waffling in his writings as to how to work this out. But he said, it's got to be their faith can't be the parents' faith, it's the child's faith, and so infants believe. Ulrich Zwingli came along in the Reformed camp and tradition, and he realized this was all ludicrous, all of it. To speak of unconscious faith is a contradiction in terms. But he had these other people who really troubled him, and they were known as Anabaptists. And what Zwingli knew he had to do was he had to keep baptizing infants. He couldn't do anything else. 
And so he had to devise a way to how do you separate faith from baptism. Desperate to find a way to continue baptizing infants without embracing the obvious errors of Luther and the Roman Catholic Church, Zwingli turned down a dark alley. With Zwingli, the Reformed Communion became became the only Christian communion in history to separate baptism and faith. And so Zwingli said, there is no faith in baptism. First time that was ever said. Did he know that? Did he realize how novel his idea was? He said this in 1525. In this matter of baptism, if I be pardoned for saying it, I can only conclude that all the doctors, that means all the biblical scholars, have been in error from the time of the apostles. This is a serious and weighty assertion, and I make it with such reluctance that had I not been compelled to do so by contentious spirits, which he means the Anabaptists, I would have preferred to keep silence. We shall have to tread a different path from that taken either by ancient or more modern writers or by our own contemporaries. So what he is saying is that every Christian believer in the Bible from all time, from the time of Jesus until 1525, were all in error. That faith and baptism are not connected. And going down that path pressed by the Anabaptists to explain how infants could have faith, unable to say with the Roman Catholic Church or Luther that infants had faith, Zwingli made this desperate decision. He claimed that what every legitimate Christian thinker had seen for 1.5 millennia was wrong. And he rejected the notion that faith precedes baptism, that it's a necessary ingredient of baptism. So by appealing to the overarching covenant of grace and thus minimizing the distinctions between the Old and the New Covenant, Zwingli equated New Covenant baptism with Old Covenant circumcision. Now that works logically. In the Old Covenant, children who were circumcised had no faith. If we say then that infant baptism replaces that in the New Covenant, We can say they have no faith. Faith isn't an issue. It's not necessary. The problem, again, is the biblical text. Everywhere where baptism is mentioned, it always is in a context of faith. But in doing so, Zwingli then justified infant baptism while failing to appreciate that the new covenant is distinct from the old covenant in this sense at least. All in in the new covenant believe. There is no such thing as a person in the New Covenant who does not have faith in Christ. Yes, there were unredeemed unredeemed Israelites who were circumcised, but there are no participants in the New Covenant blessings who are unregenerate. Simply said, Paul never conceived a baptism apart from a person's conscious trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, so what? I mean, that's just all a bunch of intellectual discussion and bantering over what, who were the right recipients of baptism. I think that is very significant to us as we gather here today. I've done nothing even close to an argument against infant baptism, just traced out a little bit of the history. But 
As we seek to honor the meaning of baptism, it is vital to this church, based on our understanding of Scripture, that faith precedes baptism. In just a few moments, we're going to ask those who are candidates for baptism here today who have been prepared through a lengthy process, we are going to ask them to give voice to their faith in Jesus Christ. That is very significant. It doesn't have to be done this way as such. We haven't done it this way as a church all of our experience. But it is a very vital part of what baptism is. It is a person's own faith in Christ. Apart from such faith, the symbol of baptism is stripped of any real meaning. It points to what? We don't know. It may point to nothing. If this child never comes to regeneration in Christ, it may be nothing but a wasted ceremony. Now, undoubtedly, there are people who can be baptized, immersed in water as adults professing their faith in Christ who really aren't regenerate, no question. But as we look at this, it's vital that we can connect faith and baptism as far as lies within us. Now back to Romans 6, and I need to move quickly here, but notice the word baptize. This will be news for some here perhaps today. But the Greek word means what? The Greek word means immerse or submerge. So if you were sprinkled in a Christian church, you were sprinkled. If someone poured water on you in ceremony, you, there was pouring but you've not been baptized, not in the sense of the word as what it really means. You've not been baptized until you've been submerged in water. The Greek word means immersion, and immersion is the only mode used in the ancient church. When Jesus calls his disciples to be baptized, he's calling them to be submerged in water. It's interesting to me that the Greek Orthodox Church, which knows the Greek, submerges their infants. They practice infant baptism, but when they do, they put them entirely under the water because they know baptism only means one thing. It's sprinkling and baptism are two different words for a Greek speaker. And so when Jesus calls us to be baptized, he means to be submerged in water. Now, another major issue with the uh, idea of baptism here, some people say that baptize refers here in Romans 6 only to spiritual baptism not to physical immersion in water. This is not what Paul is teaching, and it is a concept that would have been unintelligible to him and to ancient believers. Separating spiritual baptism from physical baptism, I think they could have seen that distinction, but they would have never separated the two. They were inseparable. Theologian Thomas Schreiner says this well. He's, I'll just quote him here, separating water baptism and spirit baptism introduces a false dichotomy into the Pauline argument. Paul does not drive a wedge between spirit baptism and water baptism as if the former is what really matters and the latter is superfluous. Spirit baptism and water baptism were part and parcel of the complex of saving events that took place at conversion. I think he's right on in that statement. Paul simply uses baptism as shorthand for the conversion experience as a whole, writes Douglas Moo. And I would argue that baptism in water uniquely symbolizes this salvation by which believers are brought into the new age of the Spirit. 
So we have here these ideas. Baptized into Christ Jesus. Buried with Him by baptism into death. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. What is that language all saying? In a mystical sense, we are baptized with the Spirit into union with Jesus Christ. Jesus' death becomes our death. Jesus' resurrection becomes our resurrection. And the waters of baptism picture that union with Christ. They show us identifying with His death and resurrection as the all-important moment of our lives and of history. So as we think on the symbolism of baptism, let me just summarize it this way. What What we're going to observe here is this. Baptism symbolizes death as a consequence of sin necessitating repentance and forgiveness. That's part of the message of baptism. I think that's totally lost in many, many Christian churches, particularly as they're baptizing infants. I don't think most Christian churches doing that are gathering together saying this child is a depraved sinner. Now, Many of them do, but certainly not many others. Baptism symbolizes death as the consequence of my sin. And I don't think anyone coming to the waters of baptism is beginning to understand the point unless they say, I deserve death. I deserve the judgment of God. Number two, baptism symbolizes the death of Jesus Christ to sin and my death with Him. His death, His judgment by God becomes mine. And I receive then, of course, also His righteousness. But I'm identifying with His death because of my sin. Thirdly, baptism symbolizes not only Jesus' death, but the cleansing power of that death for sinners. Here I'm emphasizing that phrase, the cleansing power of that death. In that death comes purification from sin. And fourth, baptism symbolizes the new resurrection life I have received in union with Jesus. There was a man a few years ago who was baptized in our church, and as he came up out of the water, I'll never forget this, I lifted him out of the water, and he said, I'm a new man. And I, I, I just want to go to heaven right there. I was done. <laughs> but it was, it was beautiful. I don't think he was saying, I was just saved. We talked to him at long length at his knowledge of salvation. But I think what he, he caught the symbolism of it. I've come up out of this water and I'm a new man. I've identified with the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what we're to catch. For those who believe in salvation by works, baptism points to a salvation by works. And there's a lot of people, both infants and Young people and adults being baptized today in churches where that's exactly what they're celebrating. Baptism saves you. And they're real excited about that. For those who believe baptism identifies children with the covenant their parents are part of, baptism points to that. It's not pointing to faith, as we find in the New Testament text. It's pointing to their parents' identification with the new covenant. But when the person baptized is baptized as a testimony of his or her genuine faith 
in the gospel of Christ, then baptism points where it should. That person's death with Jesus and resurrection with Jesus. Have you identified with Jesus in this way? I can tell you this church did not invent this. This isn't a practice of our heritage. This is what I believe Jesus meant when he said, go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to follow my teaching. Have you come to that place to identify with Christ in this way, in baptism? Some have, and we're going to have them come now. Uh, and to share with you briefly their testimony of faith. We have spent um, much time with them in private to strive as far as we can to discern their walk with the Lord, and we thank the Lord very much for each of these uh, candidates and the trust that they've placed in Christ as Savior. So we're going to start with, let's see, we're going to roll the, no, I'm kidding. We're going to start with Ashley. (laughs) We've got her fully prepared. Ryan can't wait to get up here. Ashley, it's a little different, so work with her. We're going to give her confidence and strength, and uh, she's going to share her testimony with you. Go ahead, Ashley, and if you fall over, I'll catch you, okay? (laughs) Okay, by the age of 13, my life experience had left me afraid of letting people in for fear of being hurt. I was hurt and broken and began to push away those who loved me. I was left an angry person, and I'm sure I caused a lot of pain to those who loved me, trying to push them away. At this point, I was focused on all the bad messages I had heard over the years and was blind to the good. When I was 13, I I moved with my dad from Colorado to Minneapolis, and we moved in with my grandparents. When I was little, my parents never attended church regularly, so I had very little background in a Christian faith. My grandma knew this and was a very strong woman of faith, and she wanted very much for me to share her beliefs and to have a Christian education. So she paid for me to have a Christian education. Through my schooling and the people they placed in my lives, I began to understand how I was a sinner and that Christ died on the cross for my sins. During this time, he taught me the lesson of forgiveness, forgiveness for those sins committed against me and forgiveness for those sins I committed committed out of anger. God opened his eyes to his presence in my life, even in the worst of times. I wasn't until after high school that I actively began to seek a deeper understanding of my relationship with Christ. It was during this time of active seeking that I came to have a deeper understanding of the gospel, how I fell from our holy God in sin, and that a perfect Christ died, died for my sins, <clears throat> that, and that I must continue to live a life of repentance and faith in Christ. As I, as I fall short every day, it is God I run to and ask for forgiveness, and to him I trust above all else. I'm getting baptized today to publicly identify with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. I desire to be a part of Eden Baptist to become a, become a part of a biblical body of believers to help further the kingdom of God. Like many Americans today, I was born and raised in a Christian home. Many of my friends were also, but I don't think that saves anyone. You know, growing up, I heard Bible stories, I memorized scripture, I even asked Christ into my heart as a young child to save save me from my sins. Let's not forget youth group, Bible camps, high school church retreats, but what do all these things mean? 
I'm sure many people can relate to this. And as an adult, you kind of grow away from it. Maybe your college professors told you Christianity was a crutch for the weak-minded. But for me personally, I had to ask, you know, what my parents raised me as, is it going to be something that is my own? And for me, it wasn't until my college years that I really started to digging, digging into scripture. I found theology fascinating. And through those studies and the reading of scriptures, I began to realize, again, as an adult, that I am a sinner and I've fallen so short of God's standards. And it's only by God's grace that I realized how bad my sin is and how great of a need I had for Christ. And I could do nothing but repent of my sins and ask Christ to be the head of my life. As he was the one who lived a sinless life, was crucified, died, and rose again in my place as an atoning sacrifice for my sins. Whether I was saved as a child or adult, I don't know. What matters is it is only by God's grace that I am saved through the faith that he has given me to believe. Now I'm here before all of you, ready to make a public display of my faith and commitment to God through baptism and asking to be part of this church in membership, to become more part of the community through fellowship, accountability, and the hearing of God's word. Hi, Tati comes with a translator. Hey, what is it? Eric. 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 This is Eric. Eric's I'm my just interpreter today too. because my mom <laughs> and one of my friends speak Spanish, so um, he is going to help me today. Thank you guys for being with me today. Um, <clears throat> I will start with a versicle in the Bible, it says John 8:32. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Voy a empezar con una, un versículo de la Biblia, es Juan 8.32, dice, Y conoceréis la verdad, y la verdad os hará libres. I was raised in a Catholic family, but we did not go often to church or read the Bible. Me creé en una familia católica, pero no íbamos a la iglesia mucho, ni leímos, leímos la Biblia mucho. My mom was both mother and father, and she was always busy working and trying to make money. Mi mamá era tanto madre como padre. Ella siempre estaba trabajando y intentando ganar dinero. Because my dad was alcoholic. Porque mi padre era al alcohólico. My childhood was not great. Mi, mi niñez no fue muy buena. I had a, a lot of insecurity and low self-esteem. Tenía mucha inseguridad y muy baja autoestima. My good memories are from my grandfather, who spent time with, with me every weekend. Mis buenas memorias son de mi abuelo, quien pasó mucho tiempo conmigo todos los fines de semana. He was a Baptist Christian, and he, has a, he was a mother for me in many ways. Él era un cristiano bautista, y era, él era un ejemplo para mí en muchas maneras. When I was younger, I was a sinner. Cuando era más joven, yo era pecadora. My life was empty. Mi vida estaba vacía. I was living a fake life without any purpose. Yo estaba viviendo una vida falsa, sin propósito. 
when I came to the United States, when I came to the United States, cuando yo vine a los Estados Unidos, I was, uh, it was a big change for me. Fue un cambio muy grande para mí. I felt alone, sad, out of, uh, out of place. My only desire was to learn English, make money, and go back to Ecuador. Yo me sentía muy sola, muy triste, y fue de lugar. Mi único deseo fue aprender el inglés, ganar dinero, y después volver al Ecuador. But God had a plan for me. Pero Dios tenía un plan para mí. I can tell right now that he was with me and never left me. Yo puedo decir ahora mismo que él estaba conmigo y nunca me dejó. He blessed me with a nice husband. Me bendijo con un buen esposo. I had the opportunity to work as a Spanish teacher and as an interpreter. Tuve la, la oportunidad de trabajar como un, una maestra de español y también como intérprete. I met a Julie Fox at work and she was my counselor. Yo conocí a Julie Fox en el trabajo. Ella era mi consejera. She was my friend and helped me in times of struggle. Era mi amiga y me ayudó durante los tiempos de dificultad. I was feeling so sad, frustrated and anxious. Yo estaba sintiéndome muy triste, muy frustrada y muy ansiosa. She invited me to Eden and I started to come to Eden to hear the gospel. Me invitó a, a Eden y yo empecé a venir a Eden a escuchar el evangelio. And I'm so thankful because little by little I heard God's word and the Holy Spirit was working on my heart and preparing me to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Yo estoy muy agradecida porque poco a poco escuché la palabra de Dios y el Espíritu Santo estaba trabajando en mi corazón preparándome para recibir a Jesús como mi Señor y Salvador. Jesus touched me and changed my life. Jesús me tocó y me y cambió mi vida. I can say that, that he was present in my life many times. Yo puedo decir que él estaba presente en mi vida muchas veces. Before Christ, I was lost. Antes de Cristo, yo estaba perdida. And right now, I feel like I'm standing next to God, looking at my life. Y ahora mismo, me siento que estoy al lado de Dios, y él está mirando mi vida. And knowing that he has taken, he, he has taken me from the path to self-destruction and placed me on the path to him. Y yo sé que él me has tomado del camino de autodestrucción y me ha puesto en el camino a él. The new faith in the Lord that he has blessed me with is the foundation that I will build my new life on. La nueva fe en el Señor con la que me ha bendecido es el fundamento en el que construiré mi vida. September 2010, I admit that I was a sinner. En septiembre de 2010, yo admití que yo era pecadora. I have done many things that doesn't please God, my God. He hecho muchas cosas que no agradan a mi Dios. I have lived my life for myself. He vivido mi vida para mí. I repented and asked and asked to to forgive me. Yo me arrepentí y le pedí que él me perdonara. I believe that he died on the cross for me to save me. Yo creo que él murió en la cruz por mí para salvarme. And I asked him to take control of my life and 
I gave it to him. Y yo le pedí que él tomara control de mi vida y se la di. For many years, my faith in God was something I said, not something I lived. Durante muchos años, mi fe en Dios fue algo de la que hablaba, no fue algo que vivía. I always believed that God could forgive our sins, and he was the way, the truth, and the light. Creía que Dios podía perdonar nuestros pecados, y que él era el camino, la verdad, y la luz. But I didn't know what that meant. Pero yo no sabía qué significaba eso. No, I know. Ahora, ahora lo sé. And I know that I want to do the Lord's will and not my own. Ahora sé que yo quiero hacer la voluntad del Señor y no mi propia voluntad. I want his path to be mine. Yo quiero que su camino sea el mío. I can say that I, that I have a father who cares about me. Yo puedo decir que yo tengo un padre que cuida de mí. And someday soon I will be in heaven. Y algún día yo estaré en el cielo. I know that, that this life won't be easy. Yo sé que esta vida no será fácil. But I have him to help me and give me strength and wisdom. Pero yo tengo a él para ayudarme y para darme fuerza. To live a holy life. Y él me ayudará a vivir una vida santa. I am here today to obey Christ's command to be baptized. Yo estoy aquí ahora para obedecer el mandato de Cristo que yo sea bautizada. As I, and, <coughs> and, and, and identify with his death, burial, and resurrection. Y me identifico con su muerte, su entierro y su resurrección. I want to be part of this body. Yo quiero ser parte de este cuerpo. I want to serve. Quiero servir. I want to build my faith. Yo quiero edificar mi fe. I want to learn more about the Lord and to follow his commandments. Quiero aprender más del Señor y seguir sus, uh, sus mandamientos. I know now that my purpose in life is to magnify his name. Yo sé ahora que el propósito de mi vida es magnificar su nombre. To build up his body and spread the gospel. Edificar su cuerpo y también esparcir el Evangelio. My hope with this testimony is to say that we have a God. Mi esperanza con este testimonio es decir que tenemos un Dios. Who loves us and cares for us. Que nos ama y que cuida de nosotros. He sent us a perfect gift, his son. Él nos envió un regalo perfecto, su hijo. If you don't have a Jesus... Si tú no tienes a Jesús, please receive him in your heart and let him work in your life. Por favor, recíbele y deja que él trabaje en tu vida. Thank you. Gracias. I grew up typical of a Midwestern teenager. I was learning the impression that Good deeds and a faith in God would get you to heaven, and that was enough. That's not so. When I was at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, in basic training, I was at a service given by a Southern Baptist minister. He explained my need for salvation and what that really was. God is holy, and I am a sinner. God graciously died for my, under, uh, my undeserving soul. God himself came down from heaven as Jesus Christ to pay the penalties for my sin. That is when this full realization that God is Jesus Christ and that he came down to pay for us, that's when it fully set in. 
by only God's grace, I responded by repenting of my sins and turning to Jesus Christ as my Savior. Now I have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, and he is my personal Savior. Since then, there have been many ups and downs. In recent years, my understanding of the gospel has deepened and grown. I'm continuing to place my faith in Jesus Christ, that he was crucified and risen for my sins, and this is my only means of salvation. I was sprinkled with water as an infant. However, I crave a new baptism. To me, baptism means that I am an adult who is choosing to pursue Christ and a godly life. As an adult, I will publicly declare that this is my choice and that this is what I want for my life, Christ as my personal Savior. Becoming a member of Eden Baptist means it will be official that I will be committed to being a part of a greater body, the, the body of Christ. I want to be surrounded by others, Christians who desire fellowship. Also, being a part of Eden Baptist Church means that I will have fellow Christians who will keep me accountable and help me on my walk with God. Amen. If you would join me here at the front, each of you, and let's all join together. Part of the identification here is with Christ and also with his body, as Matt has mentioned. So let's stand together. And we, as members of the church, reaffirming our covenant to follow the New Testament pattern for a church and these candidates covenanting with us to join together in this assembly. Having been led by divine grace to repent of our sin and trust for salvation in the substitutionary death and victorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and upon this profession, having been immersed in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We pledge to regularly attend the assembling of this church to support its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrine, and to contribute willingly and faithfully to its spiritual and financial stability and its spread of the gospel to all nations. We pledge to walk together in a spirit of unity and love, to avoid all unwholesome and unedifying speech, to honor the leadership of the church, and to exercise affectionate concern and spiritual watch care over one another. We pledge to faithfully admonish and encourage one another to live holy lives, to serve one another, to rejoice in one another's happiness, and to bear one another's burdens and sorrows with tender compassion. We pledge to be zealous for good works, to regularly read and meditate upon the Scriptures, to pray for ourselves and for one another, to persevere in wise living, not causing others to stumble, rejecting ungodliness and embracing holiness, and to seek the salvation of the lost through faithful proclamation of the gospel. We also pledge that if we leave this assembly, we will promptly unite with another church where we may carry out the spirit of this covenant. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. You may be seated. Encourage you to stay for this baptism. I realize the hour's getting late and perhaps you need to leave. You're certainly free to do that. We will not linger long, uh, but we'll uh, fairly shortly be done. But we come to this time of baptism for these candidates. <laughs>